So we've been in the books of First and Second Samuel. I usually call it just one book because it is. And that's most important when you're at the, at the dividing line between the two of them. You need to remember when you reach the end of First Samuel, you've got to keep reading because it keeps going. But it's in two different volumes, and we're now in the one that we call Second Samuel. We're at the very tail end, and we've covered some really interesting ground. But the most important lesson I want you to take from these messages that we've been through in, in the book of Samuel, the most important lesson I want you to take home with you is this, that God is pursuing you, but he's pursuing a specific version of you. God is pursuing the version of you that will pursue him back. Early on in the book of Samuel, we read this passage where Samuel is talking to God and and Samuel then says to the king, who's currently the king, Saul, he says to Saul, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. That's been our theme verse for most of the messages. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And we find out that's David. And David is not a perfect guy. David is not a perfect guy. We've seen time and time again where David has exploited women for his own benefit. We've seen a moment where he murdered a person through, by proxy through another army. And we've seen a number of other ways that David has just fail, fail, failed. I mean, failed far worse than you and I ever have. But the thing that makes David a person after God's own heart is not that David always takes after God. It's that David is always after God. He is after God in the sense of pursuit. And the thing that sets up David apart from the previous king, Saul, is that Saul was always pursuing his own selfish ideas, his own selfish aims. And David sometimes was selfish. But when David was selfish and it was pointed out to him, he confessed, he realized He said he was sorry, he repented, he got back to God, and he said, God, let me make it right. And today, we're going to encounter David trying to make things right. In one of the stories we look at, David is making right a wrong that someone else did. And in the second story, David is making making right a wrong that he did. And so it doesn't matter whether he's at fault or not, David is still going to try to make the situation right. And so we pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 21, right at the beginning. And it says this, During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord. The Lord said, It is on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. Now, before I read any farther, I want to pause there to just acknowledge a couple things that I think are really important. First of all, we don't know when this happened. It is sometime during the reign of David. It is not necessarily at the end of his reign or the beginning of his reign. It's just sometime in the middle of his reign. And that's because the timing of it doesn't matter. However, God is the one who's upset with the people. There's a famine in the land for three years, and it is because God is upset with them. And it is because of an injustice that has been done. And so David, unlike many other times, when there's a problem, David turned towards God and found that God had the answer. In fact, God was the cause. And so therefore, David needed to figure out what God wanted to be made right so that the famine could end. 
Okay? It's a pretty obvious setup, but these, these little details are important for us to recognize. And the last thing I want to emphasize for you is just this idea that God is upset with the entire nation of Israel because of something that Saul, the previous king, had done. Something the previous king did now has ramifications for this moment under David. It's not David's fault. It's Saul's fault. But David has the burden of the responsibility of trying to fix it. So let's see what happens. Let's see how David deals with this problem. Uh, Chapter 21, verse 2. So the king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not part of Israel, but were survivors of the Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to spare them, but Saul, in his zeal for Israel and Judah, had tried to annihilate them. Roughly 400 years before David, the people of Israel entered the promised land, and they encountered a group of people called the Gibeonites, who helped them in some way and said, please spare us. And Joshua made a promise to them that he would spare them. But then years later, 400 years later, Saul breaks the promise by killing a bunch of them. And that violates God's heart for these people. Anyway, so David asks the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? The Gibeonites answered him, We have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor do we have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. What do you want me to do for you? David asked. So he says, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, we don't have enough standing with you to actually ask. This is called humility. They say, we don't have the right to ask for a specific thing. But David asks them again. He says, no, what do you want me to do for you? And so now they finally give the answer. They answered the king, as for the man who destroyed us, namely Saul, and plotted against us so that we have been decimated and have no place anywhere in Israel, let seven of his male descendants be given to us to be killed and their bodies exposed before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the Lord's chosen one. Basically what they're saying is we want a sacrifice. Saul took many of our men. And so we want seven of Saul's descendants as a symbolic gesture of retribution so that then they will be killed and they will be exposed, their bodies will be exposed to the elements in Saul's hometown so that all the people there will know the evil that Saul did. And then God will also see that and he will forgive the land. Verse 7. The king spared, oh, so the, so the king said, I will give them to you. The king spared Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan. We've seen his name show up before. He's Jonathan's son, and David had made a promise to Jonathan that he would spare all of Jonathan's descendants. So the king spared Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath before the Lord between David and Jonathan, son of Saul. But the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, a different Mephibosheth, the two sons of Aya's daughter Rizpah, whom she had borne to Saul, together with the five sons of Saul's daughter Merab, whom she had borne to Adriel, son of Barzillai the Meholathite, he handed them over to the Gibeonites, who killed them and exposed their bodies on a hill before the Lord. 
All seven of them fell together. They were put to death during the first days of the harvest, just as the barley harvest was beginning. There's something weird that's going on there that I, I need to draw your attention to. It's that last line, during the first days of the harvest, just as the barley harvest was beginning. Now, you have to be really familiar with the Bible to understand the significance of that. But that phrase, just as the barley harvest was beginning, is the last phrase of the book of Ruth. Because at the book of Ruth, the way it ends is this woman who has lost her husband, and her mother-in-law is just a crab apple. And everything about her life is just not going well, but she's committed to doing the right thing with her life. And eventually, at the end of the story, a man falls in love with her, marries her, she has a child, and at the end of the story it says that the child was born as the barley harvest was beginning. At the, at the, the whole part of this thing, there's this line in that book that says, that refers to the barley harvest as a sign of hope. What was the problem that David was trying to solve? Do you remember? There was a famine in the land that had lasted three years. And here, in this little line, it says the barley harvest is beginning, meaning God has already started to solve this problem. Meaning, on the day that these guys are killed, God has already done the background work so that this famine will end. He's already been preparing for that moment because he has already seen David being willing to take action. He knows David's heart better than anyone else. He's trying to solve that problem, and God is all ready to move. And so the harvest is getting ready to start. But there's another thing about this. I mean, on the one hand, there's happiness. The harvest is beginning. But on the other hand, Saul's descendants have just seen seven of their family members slaughtered and exposed. That doesn't make a lot of sense to us, does it? Well, it certainly was painful for the people back then. Look at what happens next. Verse 10. Rizpah, daughter of Ayah, took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on a rock. From the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heavens on the bodies, she did not let the birds touch them by day or the wild animals by night. When David was told what Aya's daughter Rizpah, Saul's concubine, had done, he went and took the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the citizens of Jabesh-Gilead, a city way far away. They had stolen their bodies from the public square at Beth Shan, where the Philistines had hung them after they struck Saul down on Gilboa. David brought the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from there, and the bones of those who had been killed and exposed were gathered up. They buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the tomb of Saul's father Kish at Zelah in Benjamin, and did everything the king commanded. After that, God answered prayer in behalf of the land. Quick summary. So here's what happened. Saul and his son Jonathan are fighting in their final battle, and they both get killed by Philistines. They get killed by Philistines. 
or actually Saul commits suicide himself, and then later on the Philistines show up. But when the Philistines get Saul and Jonathan's body, they take their bodies and they put them on display as a public disgrace for the king and his son who are now dead and the Philistines have defeated them. So the people of Jabesh Gilead go to where Saul's body is exposed and Jonathan's body, and they take Jonathan and Saul's body and they take it back to their own town and they bury them properly. And then years later, years later, this other thing happens with Saul's children where they get killed by the Gibeonites. And now Rizpah, one of the family members, is mourning in sackcloth and ashes. And she is so brokenhearted and so sad. And when David hears about her woundedness, her sadness, he doesn't just solve her immediate problem. He goes all the way back to this story. And he says, no, I'm going to get Saul and Jonathan's bones. And I'm going to gather them up. And I'm going to also gather up the remains of these men who have just now been killed. And I'm going to give them all a proper burial in their father's hometown. Kish was Saul's father. I'm going to give them all a proper burial in Saul's father's hometown so that now all of these remains can come back home and they can be treated with honor and respect. This is the fascinating thing to me about this story. David knows something is wrong, and so he seeks God. And God says, this is why it's wrong. You've got to solve this problem. And so David, first of all, he wants to make things right with God. He wants to make things right with God. And so he says, okay, God, I'm going to go ahead and take care of something. And then, then he knows he has to talk to the Gibeonites, and he finds out what their problem is. He finds out what the issue is, and he actually says, how can I help? And they say, no, you can't help. We don't have any right to do it. And he pushes. And he says, no, I'm serious. How can I help? Because David wants to make things right for the Gibeonites. But here's the problem. Justice for the Gibeonites means sadness for the family of Saul. Justice for the Gibeonites means more tragedy for the family of Saul. And where most kings and people in charge, they'll just make their choice with regard to which person gets justice and which person gets pain, and they'll just choose it and they'll move on, David deals with that part too. He gives justice to the Gibeonites, and he also tries to alleviate the pain of the remaining family. He doesn't just deal with the remains of the current men who've been lost. He goes all the way back to bring back something bigger. You see, the picture you get is a picture of David absolutely committed to making things right. He just simply wants to make things right. And you've got to remember the word right is the root of the word righteous, which is in the Bible's languages both Hebrew and Greek, the same word as justice. David wants to bring justice and rightness. But this leads me to a question. I'm going to take just a little side note. Last night, this thought came to me, and I really worried about even writing it down because it was, it was kind of a scary thought. But I know you people can handle this, and so I'm, good, I'm going to share it with you. I was thinking about the fact that it seems so unjust for seven men to die for the sins of a previous generation. 
It seems, doesn't it? It seems unjust. It seems unfair for these seven men to be killed because of the sin of their father or grandfather or great-grandfather. It seems wrong to us that one group of people would have to pay for something that a previous group of people had done wrong. And that's what's happening here. There's something in this story that, that grabs onto my heart in a weird way. And I think, if I were ever in David's shoes, I mean, just hypothetically, if I were ever in a situation where I became aware, if you and I were ever in a situation where we became aware that some previous generations had done extreme injustice to another group of people, and then we become aware of that extreme injustice done by previous generations to some group of people, there's a, there's a part of me that wonders, you know, how would I respond in such a, in such a case? And what if, what if like really, really smart people had figured out that to solve some of this injustice that previous generations had done, what if really smart people had figured out that to solve some of this injustice, it wouldn't require me to lose my life? That solving some of that previous injustice could involve merely economic and social modifications to the way I live or the way our society is structured. What would it be like if I found out that such previous generations had done such injustice and a possible solution involved something as simple as making minor social and economic modifications? Man, if I were ever in a place like that, I would want, I would so want a king like David, a leader like David, who would step up and say, you know what? It's about time we get these reparations right. Now, I don't, I don't know exactly how that applies in our world today, but I'll tell you in just a couple ways. There's, there's at least one way that my heart is broken over the sins of previous generations. And for a long time, I wondered why in the world would I ever feel a sense of responsibility to something that some previous group of people had done to some other group of people. But I tell you what, the, the older I get, the more I learn about history. You know, there was a time I hated history because you had to memorize like dates and stuff. And then you had to take tests on the dates and the people that you had memorized. And one of the things that fascinates me about how much I hated history is how much I got good grades in history and still never learned history. Because as I've gotten older, I've learned more and more about some of the injustice that was done in our country with regard to racism with regard to other economic disparities and hatreds that have just festered in our society for so many years? I tell you, I don't know all of the answers. And I don't know all of the solutions. And I don't have the right to demand, hey, this should happen or that thing should happen. And I'm not one of the smart people who's done all the analysis on whether or not this justice can be solved with my death or maybe just some minor economic modifications to our world. I haven't done all of that. I'm not one of those smart people. But I will say this. I'm definitely in the place of longing for leadership like David. Someone who'd go to the victims, 
Go to the people who have been oppressed. Go to the people who have been wounded and hurting for a long time and ask them specifically, what can we do to make this right? And then a king like David, acting because God has prompted him to do so, would then say, well, let's make it right. Even if justice here causes some sorrow here. I don't know all the ways to apply that, but I see that my God in heaven has put in his word a story of a man like David doing an action like this. Now, that's not where we're ending today because David is trying to make things right, not just in this one instance. He's also trying to make things right even when he's the one who causes the problem. And in chapter 24, the writer of Samuel gives us a parallel account. It's a story that has so many similarities to the one we just looked at. It starts with a problem, God reveals the solution, and you know, so on and so forth. And eventually David makes things right. It's got a really parallel story, but the story has some details in it that are really, really disturbing and really, really challenging to us in a lot of different ways. Chapter 24, verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. Pause. Because this has so much stuff buried in it that it's hard for us to grasp as as we study it. Here it is. God is angry at Israel again. And we don't know why. We don't know what's going on in this instance, and we don't know exactly what's happening and how everybody knows about this, but God is angry with Israel because they've done something else that's wrong. And here's where it turns really disturbing. God doesn't punish them this time, right? He's angry with them, but he doesn't punish them. Instead, he incites David to do something that will lead to God punishing them. Now, that's based on something that you, you don't know unless you're familiar like with some of the most obscure parts of the Old Testament. And it is the rules about taking a census. Yes, there are in fact rules about taking a census. Before I give you the rules about taking a census, I want to share with you the heart of taking a census. The reason a king would take a census is for one of two reasons. Reason number one, you want to tax the people accurately. Reason number two, you want to build an army with these people. And you count so that you know how much money you have and how many soldiers you have. That's what counting is all about. Now, why would you ever count if you had enough money? You wouldn't need a census if you already had enough money. Why would you ever count if you already had enough soldiers? You would never need to count unless you felt like you needed more soldiers. And so for David and for the other kings of Israel, taking a census was an act of not trusting God. Let me just show you one of the passages we saw earlier on in 2 Samuel chapter 8. Here it is, verse 6 and verse 14. It says that David put garrisons in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus and the Arameans became subject to him and brought tribute and the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. And then in verse 14, it said, he put garrisons through Edom and all the Edomites became subject to David and the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. 
And we, we harped on this verse a couple times before a few weeks ago. God gave David victory wherever he went. It doesn't matter how much money he has. It doesn't matter how many soldiers he has. All that matters is that God is with David. And so wherever David goes, victory goes. Well, if that's the case, you don't need a census, do you? In other words, when David was taking the census, that would be an act of not trusting God. But it's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. You see, there was actually a rule that Moses had given about taking censuses. It's in Exodus chapter 30, verse 12. It says this. When you take a census, see, God already knew they were going to take censuses. In fact, God commanded a couple of them. But he says, when you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come on them when you number them. Two things going on here. So the idea is that when you take a census, you have just counted an additional person. At the beginning of the census, you have zero. Then as soon as you count your first person, you have one. When you count the next person, you have two. When you count the next person, you have three. If this doesn't make sense, this is called increase. And anytime you have an increase, anytime you have an income, God's general practice, his general procedure is something called the tithe. Anytime you have a new child, a firstborn child, you pay a redemption price for that first child. When you have a first lamb, you sacrifice the lamb. Anytime you have an increase, God asks for a tithe or a portion back to him. And in this case, every individual human, a portion of their net worth needs to go back to God as a ransom for the life that has, been, has now been added to the number of the Israelites. See, the problem with the census is that when you start a census, you go all the way back to zero. And so now when you are doing all the counting, every single one of them is an increase. But this is the other part that I think is really fascinating. It's not just that God says, hey, I want payment for every single person you count. It's also that God had said that phrase at the end that just is weird, where it says, then no plague will come on them. This is weird because there's no place in the Bible where it says, if you count people, a plague will come. The only thing we can conclude is that the people of Israel already assumed that. That the people of Israel, before the time of Moses, assumed that censuses were followed by plagues. They just kind of assumed that was going to happen. And that's why Moses says, okay, God is making a provision so that the plague won't happen. In other words, I think people were probably afraid of taking a census. And whenever the idea came up, someone probably got nervous. And God was mad at Israel, so he incited David to take a census. This is weird for all the reasons I've mentioned, but listen to me. It gets even weirder. Let me show you 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1. Here's where it gets really confusing and upsetting. It says this, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. I kid you not, 1 Chronicles 21 is almost a word-for-word copy of the story in 2 Samuel 24. 2 Samuel 24 tells us the story of the census and what happens after it. And there's like maybe 60% of the story in 2 Samuel that gets literally copied word-for-word into 1 Chronicles. 
But there are a few phrases that get changed. A few details that get added. We're going to look at one of those details later on. But a few details get added. But one of the details that gets changed is that in 2 Samuel, God was mad at Israel, so he incited David to take a census. And in 1 Chronicles, Satan rose up against Israel, so he incited David to take a census. Do you see what's going on there? It's the exact same sentence. The subject has changed. And it's not God bringing about some sort of thing. It's Satan bringing about some sort of thing. Now, I could skip right over this dilemma, but one of these days you would run across it, and then you would be like, oh, what is happening here? What is going on here? Can I trust the Bible? Just last week I made this comment about uh, Bible uh, contradictions, you know, and how you deal with contradictions in some of the places where in one part of the Bible there's actually proof that there was like a scribal error that then our modern academic study has been able to identify and then get back to the original. And I got to tell you something, this is one of those cases where there are no errors. This is one of those cases where there are no scribal problems whatsoever. In fact, 2 Samuel was written first, and that's the one that's more, dis- more frustrating for us. 2 Samuel was written first. 1 Chronicles was written, written later, many years later. And so there's a possibility that the writer of 1 Chronicles was like, mm, I don't know if I want to blame God for this whole census thing. I'll put Satan in there. Like, like, that's a theory that people have, that the writer of 1 Chronicles just replaced God's name with Satan because it's a bad thing that's about to happen, and they didn't want to blame God for that, okay? That's one possible solution. However, it's not a good solution. And so some people are like, oh, no, this is our better solution. We'll just lowercase the name Satan, because Satan is actually a Hebrew word that means the accuser. And so if God is ever the accuser of a person, then God is Satan against that person. God is the accuser against that person. But it seems really weird that anyone in Scripture would like use the word Satan to refer to God. That does seem kind of weird. So what's going on there? Well, here, I'll just jump right to the answer. The book of Job already gives us a great answer because the book of Job shows us an interesting way that God and Satan relate. A lot of times people have this idea that God and Satan are like equals. You know, that there's God and he made everybody, but he made one of the things to be really super powerful. And that super powerful thing decided that it wanted to fight against God. And so then this super powerful thing that we now call Satan decided to rebel against God. And so he took a whole bunch of uh, angels to follow him. And then God's got all these other angels. And now they're in like this constant battle. And no, 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 no. You've got to get that out of your head, okay? You've got to get that completely out of your head if you've ever had it in your head. Because this is the way it really works. God is God is God is God is God is God is God. Like, and literally nothing is on his level. Like, nothing at all is on his level. Literally everything in the universe was made by him and is under his authority. Like, like everything. Like, not just some things. Like, everything is under his authority. 
And the book of Job gives us a really compelling way of seeing that. Let me show you some of the passages in Job that one is really famous and the rest of them you might have forgotten. But the one that's really famous is at the beginning. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright. Yeah, this is great Job. And now let's see what happens next. It says this, a man who fears God and shuns evil and he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. This is chapter two. Chapter one is already when Job had his first round of disasters. So now God is like, he's still faithful. He's still faithful. And Satan says, skin for skin, Satan replied, a man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch your hand and strike his flesh and bones and he will surely curse you to your face. Satan is telling God that God should attack Job. Strike out your hand, stretch out your hand, strike him. And then the Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. Okay, so God is giving Satan parameters for the work that Satan is going to do. And then you read the rest of the story and Satan actually does. He attacks Job in a new personal way and Job is suffering. He's got all, this, all these problems and his wife comes up to him and his wife says, just curse God and die. Just be done with this world right now. Just go ahead and curse God so that he kills you and it's all over. And this is what Job says in chapter 2, verse 10. In verse 10, Job says, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? pay close attention. Who is the source of Job's trouble? Is it Satan? Is it God? Perhaps the answer is both. Like we've seen the backstory, right? But Job doesn't even bother to give Satan any credit whatsoever. Job just blames God. He says, Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And then the commentator who's writing the story says, and in this, Job did not sin. Job literally just blamed God for something. Just blamed God for something. And the passage says, Job did not sin. That's a profound, a profound idea. But keep reading because it gets even more detailed. Job 16, verse 7 and 9 says this, Surely, God, you have worn me out. You've devastated my entire household. God assails me and tears me in his anger and gnashes his teeth at me. My opponent fastens on me his piercing eyes. My opponent. Job is blaming God for deeply attacking him. Keep going. Let's look at another passage because in Job chapter 19, it says this. Then know, and he's talking to his friends, know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Though I cry violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. From Job's perspective, God is doing wrong. From Job's perspective, God is bringing injustice to Job's life. 
And then just to put the icing on this frustration cake, at the end of the book of Job, in the 40s, we get this. Chapter 42, verse 7. The Lord, he says some things to Job's friends. And then after he says these things to Job, he says to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. At the end of the story of Job, God literally says that Job was telling the truth. Here's one of the most disturbing, confusing, absolutely uh, gut-punch kind of truths that is present in the Bible and is required for anyone who believes that there is a God who made the universe. It is this. In Job, Satan did the work, but God took the credit. We so much want to create a dividing line between God, who only does good the way I define good, and Satan, who only does bad the way I define bad. And the problem is not with this understanding of God and Satan. God always does good. The problem is with our definitions. That the way we perceive things, the way we understand things, Job's definition of wrong was something God had done. Job's definition of injustice was something God had done. And so now, we have this bigger picture of something where, where Satan and God are actually cooperating in a weird way for Job. And that leads us back towards our passage with David and the census. But before we get there, I have to say one more thing. Because this whole idea is not just a Job idea. This whole idea is not just an Old Testament idea. This idea that Satan does work and God takes credit, this whole idea shows up in the New Testament too. Let me show you some of the most confusing and difficult passages that you are going to find. And one of them is in Matthew 4, verse 1. It says this, Then Jesus was led by whom? The Spirit. Into the wilderness to be tempted by whom? The devil. The Holy Spirit of God intentionally brings Jesus to Satan, where he can then say, okay, Satan, go. Your turn. Weird. Weird, I know, but it doesn't just stop there. Go to Luke chapter 22, and you'll see something that really, oh, this, this one is going to get you. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. And we got this idea. Okay, Satan, he's doing this evil thing. He's going to make Judas betray Jesus. Satan is just this bad, bad, bad dude. And he's turning Judas into a bad, bad, bad dude. Now jump over to John chapter 13, and you see this. In verse 27, as soon as Judas took the bread from Jesus on that last supper, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. In other words, Satan goes into Judas, but Jesus gives the command. Jesus is the one who says to Judas, okay, now's the time. Satan has entered Judas. Yeah, he's involved, but, Satan is the one, but Jesus is the one who says, go, now's the time. And one more, 
Let me show you this. Because in the book of Acts, chapter 2, get this. Fellow Israelites, preacher Peter is talking on the day of Pentecost. Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. If we only keep the foreknowledge, that's just a God who knows the future. But deliberate plan means God creates the future. See, if you look at the whole Judas story and you're like, ah, Satan and Judas had this thing going and they led to this incredible bad thing where, where Judas betrays Jesus. Listen, I'm not changing that narrative. Judas was evil and he was possessed by Satan in some evil way and it led to the greatest evil that has ever been done on the earth where the Son of God himself, innocent, gets killed on a cross. The greatest evil that's ever been done on the earth is right there in that moment. And yet, and yet, it was God's plan the whole time. You can't put God in a box as if you can understand who God is and why he does what he does. It is not our job to put God in a box to try to understand who he is and what he does. It's our job to follow him. It's our job to walk with him. But I want to give you some reassurance that is both scary and reassuring, I think, at the same time. It's this. Satan can't do squat. He can't do anything unless it fits into God's bigger and better plan. There is no moment where Satan gets to go rogue and just do something that, you know what, we're just going to have some fun messing with these people. Satan is on a leash. And there's no moment when he gets to do something that doesn't fit into God's bigger and better plan. Now, listen, I know sometimes you're going to go through some really, really, really terrible stuff. I know you're going to go, so, go through some stuff that I can't even imagine. I've had conversations with people who've experienced the worst kinds of traumas that I could ever possibly imagine. And I don't know how God's plan brings redemption in all of those situations. I just know that the Jesus who dies on Friday rises on Sunday. Because the God who leads to the cross is the God who gives life. And luckily for me, the life comes after the death and not the other way around. To have a life that leads to death would be terrible. But to have a death that leads to life, there's something miraculous there. And so all of that is to put into this perspective this idea that David is the king who is going to make some things right, but first, something bad has to happen. And God incites David to take a census. And watch what happens here in this passage. 
So King David said to Joab and the army commanders with him, go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, may the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over and may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders. So they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. And then we're going to skip over this list of names, and we're going to get down to verse 8. After they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. And David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I've done a very foolish thing. See, immediately, immediately after the census is done, David knows this was a foolish thing. This was, this was a, a thing that should not have been done, whether it's because they failed to give the money for each one of the people they counted, I don't know, or whether it's just because the idea of the census was acting in a distrustful way towards God, I don't know. But whatever, David realizes at that time, this was foolish. I didn't need to do this. God, what should I do to make it right? And this is what... God said. So, before, the, before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, shall there come on you three years of famine in your land or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you or three days of plague in your land? Now then think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I'm in deep distress. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great but do not let me fall into human hands. David is like, God, your mercy is great. I'll let you pick. Just, just not that middle one, not the one with my enemies, not the one with our enemies. God, let me fall into your hands however you want to do it. I'm just going to trust you. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated. And 70, notice the use of the word seven, similar to the previous story. But 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Araunah, the Jebusite. Um... It seems like a, a really roundabout story. God is mad at the people of Israel, and so he goes this roundabout way of creating a tragedy. But I want to keep reading, because where the story ends is where we get to understand why it happened. On that day, oh, when David, verse 17, when David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. In other words, David is saying, Lord, let your judgment fall on the shepherd and spare the sheep. 
let your judgment fall on the shepherd. But on that day, Gad went to David and said to him, go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Araunah looked and saw the king and his officials coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Araunah said, why, my, why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Araunah said to David, let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Araunah, gives all this to the king. Araunah also said to him, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Araunah, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my, burnt, to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Oh, that's a, that's a good verse to memorize. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God. Burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. And it's like, okay, great. So the story ends with David making a sacrifice and as a part of this sacrifice, as part of the shepherd making a sacrifice, now forgiveness has come to the land. And a lot of people had died, but at least now there is grace. And so it's like this place where God's judgment and his justice have come to intersect with grace on this altar where David does this sacrifice. And the thing that you need to know is the thing that the people in David's day did not know, but the people who read the book of Samuel knew so deeply that when they read this passage, they were absolutely stunned because there's a detail that all the Israelites knew but doesn't get recorded at the time of David. Because at the time of David, we didn't know that's where this was going to go. But if you jump over to Chronicles, in 1 Chronicles, we see David at the end of this story. Let me show it to you. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Araunah the Jebusite, he offered sacrifices there. And then David said, the house of the Lord God is to be here, and also the altar of burnt offering for Israel. That threshing floor that David bought from Araunah the Jebusite, I'd love to get back into the details of who the Jebusites are because that's cool too, but that floor, that threshing floor, becomes the foundation of the temple. What's interesting is that that lesson, that lesson shows us that God is up to something way bigger than you and me. But it starts with a king committed to doing what's right. If you're taking notes, jot this down. When David realized something was wrong, whether it was his fault or not, he made it right even when it cost him. And because they had a king like that, who was willing to make things right even when it cost him, because they had a king like that, they got a temple like they got. And the thing you need to know about the temple 
is that the temple is not just where sacrifices are made. The temple is literally where the presence of God shows up. And the fascinating thing is that the presence of God shows up at the threshing floor of Ereun the Jebusite, where the angel had been bringing the plague and where God said, no farther. This is where the plague stops. And where the judgment of God was bring, being brought to the people. And where David performed the sacrifice that God used to bring forgiveness to the people. Where the temple was built, where the sins of the society were brought to that once a year and the lamb was sacrificed on the day of atonement so that God could cleanse the land. You see, the temple is the intersection of God's justice and his mercy. The temple is the intersection of God's justice and his mercy. And the temple is the number one symbol of God's presence. What I want you to remember so deeply is that God is present wherever justice and mercy meet. There's so many times in this world where we can bring justice. But God is present when justice meets mercy. And there's so many places in this world where we can bring mercy. But God is present where mercy meets justice. Where the thing that is wrong has been made right, even if it causes sorrow, but then the sorrow is bound up as well as we can. Where, where the tragedy happens, where God even can bring us into and through and in the midst of a place of tragedy, but God will also bring mercy. And so this picture here that we have at the end of Samuel is a picture of David symbolizing this middle person symbolizing this middle person who stands in the middle where the judgment and the mercy show up at the same time. And the temple gets built on that ground. How do you take this home? How does this story really come to us? Well, I don't know. I mean, we're not, we're not dealing with three years of famine or drought. Or maybe we are. We're not dealing with a plague. I guess maybe we are. Um, I guess the question would be, are we seeking God? Are we, are we looking to see God? Is there, any, is there any work of justice that still needs to be done in this world? Is there any wrong that still needs to be made right in this world? Is there any way that I can be an agent of bringing that message of, of mercy and justice to the world? Maybe we just need some leaders like David who will be out there in this world doing this work. I'll put it this way. We've been trying to study this whole time what it means to pursue God. And I think it comes down to this. Pursuing God means pursuing justice and mercy. David, the man after God's own heart, at the end of this account, demonstrates to us in two different ways the pursuit of justice and mercy. And it's because that's what's on God's heart. It's because that's where God lives. It's because that's where God's presence is. 
And the temple doesn't exist as a building anymore, but God's presence still inhabits the same location. That place where justice and mercy meet. May God make us into agents like David of justice and mercy. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.